This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. First, we need to send out our condolences, obviously, to the uh, people who died in Egypt today. Um, a number of individuals uh, actually burned to death in a Coptic church in Egypt. And uh, our condolences go to the Coptic Egyptian community there and here. But uh, we have a great, great show today. We're going to be talking about a number of things related to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia right? In case you guys didn't uh, catch it, Saudi Arabia Ramco Company announced one of the largest profits like in their history. It jumped 90% as a result of it, you know, really high crude oil prices. And they their profits just for the half year exceeded $88 billion. This is going to the pockets of, uh, you know, MBS. And we're going to talk about some of the implications of that. In addition, Saudi Arabia... And one of its uh, leading billionaires, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, invested $500 million in three major Russian companies just as the Ukrainian invasion began. Isn't that interesting? We're going to talk about some of the implications on that. And of course, we have to talk about the breaking news with former President Donald Trump uh, having his Mar-a-Lago estate raided for classified information. And the question in front of us is who ratted on him. I, I I think it's either Jared Kushner or his daughter, but you know, we'll we'll see. But before we get to all of that, Jamal, we're gonna see an interview that you did with uh, Amar al Bayoumi. He's an Egyptian American actor and filmmaker and professor and international lawyer. He's gonna discuss his recent article in Arab America entitled Amar Goes to Hollywood, an actor's perspective on hateful Arab and Muslim stereotypes and narratives. It's a really great interview, and uh, it's very topical. Uh, so let's uh, watch uh, Amr al-Bayoumi. A picture is worth a thousand words, thus the negative stereotypes and degrading images used to portray minorities in films are a powerful agent in shaping the public's distorted perception of them. These hateful and reductive film characters then persist in the spectator's mind and influence his or her perception of the minority in society. Thus, it plays a significant role in devaluing and dehumanizing members of these groups. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Amr al-Bayoumi. In his recent article in Arab America, Amr goes to Hollywood, an actor's perspective on hateful Arab and Muslim stereotypes and narratives. He details how, despite some progress in reducing such stereotypes in Hollywood, there is still much work to be done. He lists several persistent toxic roles representing Arab and Muslims in films today. Mr. Al-Bayoumi is an Egyptian-American actor, filmmaker, professor, and international lawyer based in Washington, D.C. He has given numerous presentations on Arab and Muslim stereotypes, including a panel discussion with the SAG-AFTRA, the National Screen Actors Union. Welcome to Arab Talk, Amr. Thank you very much for having me, Jamal. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to having a, uh, an interesting and informative discussion for your listeners. First, let me begin by thanking you for writing this article. It really brought back memories uh, of my discussion with the late Jack Shaheen about his book, Real Bad Arabs, which is still very valid today. 
Tell us about your career as an actor and your first encounter with stereotyping on a personal basis. On a personal basis, uh, it started when I was just out of college. I was actually uh, working as an engineer in Los Angeles and already getting ready to go to law school at Georgetown. And being in L.A. and having that bug of acting since I was a young child, I decided to have some fun those last few months before I went to law school and started to audition for different uh, small roles uh, just to pass the time. And that first experience was in 1990, where there was a, a casting for extras in a feature film about an archaeologist in Egypt. And uh, I went not thinking much about the stereotypes that I've already been exposed to throughout the 70s and 80s, and just assuming this would be a fun role to have. And uh, lo and behold, it was your typical racist uh, production. The superior white European uh, archaeologist bossing around the ignorant and uh, subservient uh, workers at the uh, archaeological site uh, speaking Uga Booga gibberish and being bossed around. And I went, got dressed up in some quote-unquote traditional Arab uh, garb that doesn't resemble anything I had ever seen in my lifetime in any Arab country. And we were told to go into the cave and uh, we were afraid because we think it's cursed. So he offers us $100 to go in, uh, you know, the first person to get in the cave and and uh, excavate it, we'll get $100. I walked off the set. I just talked to the producer. I said, I cannot do this. This is just a demeaning of my people. I come from a very rich culture in Egypt with 7,000 years of history. Why this little slice of, of depiction of our people? So that was my first experience. And then um, I had a long career as a lawyer, but always uh, had the, the desire to become an actor. And uh, 10 years ago, I stopped being a lawyer and studied acting in London. And I've been acting ever since. And I also teach uh, acting uh, at the university here in Virginia. So uh, it's been a, 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 a great passion of mine, not for fame and fortune, but and being well aware of these stereotypes. And that's really what compelled me to write the article for Arab America, which is based on a 23-page paper that I wrote, was I really wanted to document the origin of stereotypes generally, from the Jewish Shylock to the, uh, the African-American pimp or maid or the incomprehensible uh, Asian American or the bloodthirsty Native American. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, well-documented by the late Dr. Shaheen, who was a dear friend, uh, in-depth uh, chronological uh, analysis of the origin of these stereotypes, starting with the romanticized, exoticized uh, uh, Valentino character to the subservient middle person serving the French colonists or the British colonists to the modern-day straight terrorist. And I really wanted to lay out the kind of different uh, subtleties of these stereotypes. There are plenty of the blatant, shameless, one-dimensional Arab and Muslim stereotypes as terrorists, and that's clearly depicted in Dr. Shaheen's work. What I was really after in this paper is to show some of the trends, and based on my own experience, not in taking these roles, but being offered these roles, 
and kind of keeping track over the last 10 years. And it's really come down to that straight terrorist. And then the new trend I've noticed is making an element of humanization to the terrorist. I'll give you an example here of um, uh, giving a, a bit of a personal touch to the terrorist. They're, they're fully terrorists. They want to destroy Western civilization violently and brutally. And yet um, in this uh, recent uh, audition that I was submitted, uh, it's for a show called Lioness and the executive producer is Nicole Kidman. And it's a series uh, and uh, the character is described as a rags to riches billionaire businessman with ties to terrorism, uh, rationalizes death and destruction and bloodshed uh, in the name of honor and love for his family, mm. cherishing no one above his darling daughter. So we get that quote unquote humanization that, oh, he wants to destroy the world, but he, he's got a soft spot for his daughter. This is the purported balance we are seeing in these characters now. Well, that's actually, I was going to ask you about that from when you began acting to, mm -hmm. to now, to the year 2022. Do you think that the film in industry is more open to discussion about uh, what members of different groups find offensive? I think they've shown the, the effort to give the impression that they're doing that. But the net result is just seeing this, this example I just gave you. I, I always say that a lot of... Uh, casting directors put a statement that they're committed to diversity in casting. I think in my experience, it's more they're committed to giving the impression that they are committed to diversity in casting. I'm not going to deny that there are some good roles that have come out. We have the show Rami mm -hmm. uh, by a, a very popular show. We have Arab actors playing common people such as Tony Shalhoub in uh, The Marvelous Miss Maisel. All excellent. Uh, Alia Shaukat, uh, I believe, of, uh, of Iraqi origin, uh, doing mainstream roles. However, the pervasive negative image is strong and uh, alive and well. And again, we see another um, tactic that's been used um, uh, that was really highlighted in a book by Professor Evelyn Sultani at University of Southern California. This other attempt to balance the character by having the bad Arab, and yet we have the good Arab. For example, in the show FBI, one of the agents is a good Muslim. It's a very dangerous um, approach because it gives the illusion of balance. And nevertheless, the context is Arabs and violence. There aren't any other context, the thousands of other narratives that can be explored with Arab and Muslim characters is still ignored. It is about violence and that's in our blood and that is in our root. And we will compromise and take one of the good ones and have them on our side. Uh, but the context is still the same. Does the Screen Actors Guild have influence over what constitutes uh offensive minority stereotypes in films. I mean, do you have the, 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 they, do they try to they, do something about it? Well, I mean, we have this talk that you referenced um, and awareness and everything, but that's really what motivated me to write this article is it's not changing much. And I wanted to define those things that give the illusion that it's changing. And yet the fundamentals are still there. And it cannot be denied that dehumanizing people generally uh, and the objective of that It is a chicken and egg kind of uh, relationship. When you oppress people, you need to dehumanize them. Uh, 
That's the only mechanism that can work. And through the strength of uh, film and TV, that's a mechanism that's been used to rationalize the massacre of the Native Americans. That's been used to um, to rationalize the occupation of Palestine uh, by Israeli forces. And um, it's just undeniable that it will go hand in hand. You cannot have Secretary of State Madeleine Albright speaking on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl in 1996. And when she's asked the question, uh, assuming it's true that half a million Iraqi children died as a direct result of the sanctions, is the price worth it? Well, Leslie, that's a tough question, but I would say yes, basically, and apparently regretted it years uh, years later after dying. But how can you possibly say this about any people? Fill in the blank instead of Iraqi, say Spaniards, say Jews, say anything. It is deplorable. And the only way this statement can go and, and be said and, 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 and justified and rationalized is you have to first give the sense to people that these people are lesser. And when you depict them as uncivilized and violent consistently, this is the direct result. So it goes hand in hand with the policies that lead to a Muslim ban, the uh, invasion of Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. So it's a very toxic mix. So uh, back to your question again. Uh, uh, yes, I would encourage the union to, to be more proactive in finding real solutions to this rather than this marginalization and uh, atomization of the issue through these tactics that I've given examples of. Do you think that uh, there is a hidden agenda behind these stereotypes? Is it less? Uh, is it is it less a case of ignorance and insensitivity, and more one of a deliberate desire to influence public perception of a particular group? Well, Jamal, I think it's absolutely deliberate. I think I don't think it's ignorance. It kind of is played off as oh, it's just a joke, or this is harmless. It's fiction. These are very real uh, results that result in death and invasion and billions of dollars being spent to occupy Afghanistan uh, in the name of uh, liberation or democratization of a country. You have uh, marginalized these people consistently, and this is goes hand in hand, the propaganda that goes with it. And what I also noted in my article is the extent to which we, we hear, we don't hear certain narratives. For example, I gave the example of the kite runner Uh, there, uh, there's a Broadway play now uh, in New York uh, based on the, the book and then the film by Khalid Husseini. And I did not ch- choose to audition for that. I was asked to. Um, it is not a blatant racist stereotype per se, but the idea that after 20 years of uh, the U.S. government with our tax dollars occupying Afghanistan, resulting in the deaths of tens of thousands of people, and basically turning it into a multi-trillion dollar junket for the military industrial complex. Uh, the coincidence that we are seeing a, a piece that depicts the brutality of the Russian invasion and the b- brutality of the Taliban uh, leadership prior to our occupation is very interesting. Why are we not hearing the story about the US occupation of Afghanistan? So those choices are deliberate and what you do what you do see and how you see it and what you don't see are deliberate choices. Uh, 
What about casting? I mean, there's an argument that's made that also non-Arabs are casted to play uh, the role of Arabs or the role of Muslims, etc. But then others make the same argument, well, you know, uh, the white man in this country, as in the old Western movies, always played uh, the, the indigenous uh, natives here and so forth. So, so that's, but, but you see these roles, or just give you a recent example, uh, the casting of Gal Gadot to play Cleopatra, <laughs> you know, an Egyptian queen. You know, how, how does that uh, bode with you? It doesn't bode well because it's all part and parcel of the same thing. We are narrowed down into these ugly images and we can't even be portray our own stories such as Aladdin or Gods of Egypt. And there's been several reports on that and where the producers regretted not casting Arabs in the roles. So we can't play our own good roles uh, or we're not depicted at all. There was a study here in uh, uh, by the USC Annenberg. Uh, it's called Missing and Maligned, the Reality of Muslims in Popular Global Mo Movies, uh, saying how disproportionately uh, minuscule number of Arab and Muslim characters compared to their representation in the world population in films. So that's really the, 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 the deliberate choice, which is either not to present, you don't exist, or you exist in this distorted format that we define. So that's uh, very evident um, in that. It's just like you, you have the phrase when the founding of Israel by the Zionist uh, propaganda was, it's a uh, land without a people for a people without a land. We, there's Palestinians just don't exist. And if they do exist, they're cockroaches, vermin, violent, etc. So again, going back to your initial point about whether this is deliberate or not. I mean, I'll give you an example of I was making a film about stereotypes in 2004. And I looked up uh, the word Arab on dictionary.com in the thesaurus section. Here is the definition. Bum, derelict, ragamuffin, tramp, wow. traveler, urchin, vagabond, vendor. This is in the fabric of how we define uh, these images. So um, uh, that's it. You are either non-existent or you are through this distorted lens. And it's very unfortunate. And what to do about it? Raise awareness and tell our own stories. I mean, that's a good good point to make because uh, I was going to mention, you know, what what really what does it take to make a significant inroads? For example, I recall in 2015, you know, they have the hashtag Oscars so white. Mm -hmm. You know, when they had that hashtag, resulted in what appears to be a sea change in the nomination of more people of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, does it take something like this to call out stereotyping? of Arab Americans? Of course, it's an ongoing fight. I mean, you look at the work of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee has been fighting these ugly stereotypes for decades, the work of Jack Shaheen, exposing it and, and offering alternatives by making our own work. I'm not going to sit and wait for Hollywood to wake up. It is a business. It thrives on these ugly stereotypes for uh, decades, uh, be it whatever whatever marginalized group uh any any anyone but a white protestant male it seems like has been consistently depicted in a negative fashion so uh it's just a matter of making our own work 
creating our own stories. And every time I give a lecture and have young students ask me, how do I make a film that will sell in Hollywood? I tell them don't. And then I tell them about Professor Haile Garima, who's also an independent filmmaker uh, here in Washington, D.C., says you have no excuse not to tell your own story. So it's a long process, but I think it's, it's a it's a double barreled approach, attacking and exposing these depictions while also telling other stories. I mean, it's unlimited. It's just Well, you like, mentioned earlier that you walked off the set. Uh, how many... Uh, examples of this? I mean, how many Arab Americans have done that? Or is it like, really, I mean, I understand the the financial limitations, somebody gets a role, and then they want to hold on to their job. And then they see themselves playing this stereotype, and they still go go along. Oh, with yeah. It. And I don't judge my some of my colleagues. Um, some I mean, I worked and uh, as a lawyer and was able to pay off my debt. Uh, after a couple decades of, of hard work. And uh, again, I rely on acting as my income now. So it, there are choices and sacrifices I make. But I do understand some who just say I have to, I have to work. Uh, they, in a recent documentary about Rita Moreno, she was on contract with one of the major studios and she played typically racist roles with brownface regularly and just said, hey, that's the way it was. I had to work. I'm not going to judge that. It's the system that is rotten. And to sit here and focus on individuals and criticizing their choices is not what I'm after here. I'm after raising awareness of this, this rotten system and dispelling it. So it is a, a tough choice for many. I've turned down quite a bit of money uh, for roles that I just could not in good conscience um, take. So it's all personal choices. But Again, uh, it's, a, it's a tough road to follow. Uh, you, you know, the, the argument is sometimes made, well, you have to work within the system to change the system, which to me is a very dangerous uh, way of looking at the world. Uh, I doubt you're going to change much by reinforcing these racist uh, and ugly uh, images of Arabs. You're, you're just reinforcing it. What about the successes or the inroads that we've been making? You know, we've talked about Rami Malek, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Oscar winner and and uh, and other shows now by Arab Americans, uh, Egyptian, Lebanese, and, and Palestinians, and and actually several uh, nominations. Uh, uh, do you think that kind of the more we produce and 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 create results? I mean, after all, I mean, you're Egyptian American. That's the best cinema in the entire Arab world comes out of Egypt. And and uh, will, will that kind of change probably the direction that Hollywood takes when people start to rise in, in, in stardom? I think, again, I think it's ignoring the, the background that we were talking about earlier, the, the interconnection between U.S. foreign policy and these images. So long as there's this inconsistent standard as to human rights, where human rights is viewed as a salad bar, you kind of pick and choose what you like and you don't take what you don't like. Uh, Having a consistent standard under international law and treating all human beings as uh, equal with the right to dignity and basic human rights, that's the starting point. And so long as you have those inconsistencies, you're gonna have these stereotypes and these misrepresentations or non-representations. So yes, I acknowledge, some progress. Uh, you have a new, um, I believe it's a Marvel character who's a Pakistani Muslim. 
all good stuff. But again, you look at that compared to the volume we see, uh, it's minuscule and uh, not enough is being changed. So continue fighting, continue exposing it. Well, we're seeing it in, in real time. I mean, we can cite what's happening today with the Russian war on Ukraine and then what happens in, 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 in Palestine, you know, and, and journalists saying these look like us. They have blonde hair and, and blue eyes. And exactly. I'm sure you're aware of this. So if, if, that, if that comes out from our intellectuals and journalists, I can't imagine what happens in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. When the mainstream, you know, I think it's a perfect example, Jamal. I mean, uh, so Ukraine, I mean, do you denounce international use of force illegally in any context? Or you say, okay, these people look like us and that. And it, it's it's really particularly telling. I think uh, a colleague, Mustafa Bay, uh, Bayoumi, wrote a very good piece in The Guardian about that inconsistency, that Ukraine has a priority, but... Yemen, people are being slaughtered every day, or um, Iraq, or Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, you name the place where there are people of color that are not considered as superior, therefore, uh, it is not important. And it's really glaring at this point what you see with the coverage of Ukraine. Uh, be consistent, denounce the use of force, the violation of international law, and international human rights consistently, or don't, because it's it, it, it's the selectivity is smacks of bias and, and racism. Amr al-Bayoumi, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you very much, Amel. It was a pleasure. That's the voice in the face of Amr al-Bayoumi. He's an actor talking about uh, really, you know, intensive, st- even in this day, I shouldn't say even in this day, but especially in this day, Jamal, of Arab and Muslim negative stereotypes being directed and um, kind of engaged with in Hollywood still, Jamal. So there really hasn't been any let up. In fact, according to Amr, maybe it's gotten a little worse. Well, that's a problem. It has not improved. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've studied Real Bad Arabs, the book by the late... uh, Jack Shaheen, who documented right. and investigated and chastised and had meetings and consulted with Hollywood producers trying to kind of change their attitude and their stereotyping, apparently to no avail. Maybe a little bit of improvement, but not uh, according to, to Amr, who is an actor. So aside right. from aside from him being a, a lawyer, uh, but he's also, that's his passion, acting. And he encountered it uh, himself, um, you know, including including refusing even after after he was casted and 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 hired, refusing to act in in certain films. Uh, one that I recall from the interview is Death on the Nile or the remake of Death on the Nile with Gal Gadot. Uh, now and again, here here they go again. It's it's just like when they hire, hire an Arab American, they want them to act like stupid or or subservient or a terrorist or, or, or a terrorist or, 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 or ignorant or... and and what have you. Uh, and and mentioning Gal Gadot, which is the kind of the funny thing, she's going to be acting in a new film as Cleopatra. You know, right. An, so an, you an have an Israeli. Queen. You have an Israeli being able to depict themselves or having depicting themselves as uh, Cleopatra, the infamous 
Egyptian uh, queen. So what? I don't think it's gotten better, Jamal. I don't no, see no. how it's I mean, gotten better. There it's are gotten few, worse. There are a few things, so you kind of tend to think, well, maybe it has gotten better. But what's because, better? What What's better? You know, well, you like people will might cite might cite Rami Malek. You know, uh, you know, the uh, famous Egyptian American actor. Yeah, but his winning, character, his character was an yeah, Oscar. But his character was not as an Arab. His character was no. But regardless, not as an Arab. It's, it's to say, like here he is in the movies, and he got honored and an Oscar, and and then you have uh, the the comedian uh, Rami, the other Rami with with a series on on Hulu and and other things that you see. Maybe there there and, and there are several films uh, um, uh, you know that got nominated for oscars including palestinian palestinian films but this is kind of like scratching the surface and the discrimination and the the vilification of Arab, arabs continues in 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 hollywood and also i think there's a major problem with with casting, like uh, you know, other people playing the roles, the same problems that Latinos have faced, African Americans, and uh, and also definitely Native Americans, who, if you recall, always were vilified and played by white people. They were that's you know, exactly right. No, that's exactly right, Jamal. This is not just an Arab American problem. It's a it's a disenfranchised. Uh, people of color problem in the United States. I mean, just recently, James Franco was uh, slated to uh, play Fidel Castro in a big movie upcoming. And, you know, they neglected hundreds of Latino uh, actors uh, for that role and, and in fact, uh, decided to go with James Franco instead. So, and Gal Gadot playing Cleopatra is, is yet another example. And so, I think you could make the argument that despite these crumbs that are being thrown around with, you know, Rami Malek or Rami the comedian, things are actually, you know, in in some ways a lot worse. Rami Youssef. Yeah, Rami Youssef, yeah. Yeah. But things are actually much worse for disenfranchised communities in this country uh, with respect to Hollywood right now in terms of representation. I don't see it getting better. No, no, and that's that's exactly what uh, Mr. Al Bayoumi's uh, article is all about, and and his argument, making the argument that despite some progress, as was mentioned, in reducing such stereotypes in Hollywood, there is still much work to be done, and he goes on with a whole list of of several persistent toxic roles uh, representing Arabs and Muslims uh, in films today. Moving on, uh, Jess, uh, you know, and this is something we talked about. We said, we warned about, and we said, who's profiteering? Who's making the money because of this Russian-Ukrainian war? And it's the, the Saudis. And, and, the, and, and the embargo or the uh, sanctions on, on Russian gas and, and oil. And, and, of course, we mentioned how the Europeans are suffering and telling uh, which is the the strongest economically country uh, in 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 Europe, Germany, telling its citizens to take less showers so they don't consume a lot of gas and so forth. And who's making the money? We named it aside from the United States, aside from oil companies here. Not Our the mystery. Saudi Arabia. So so. I mean, the profits are astronomical jamal astronomical profits for the saudi regime astronomical yeah. so aramco this is just 
I guess publishes financial statement on Sunday showed that its profits jumped 90% in the second quarter compared to the same time last year, earning it uh, nearly $88 billion. And, and that's we're, just we're, for a quarter, Jamal. That's exactly, just one quarter. Exactly. So, so uh, you know, uh, even the company itself credited uh, uh, the jump to higher crude oil prices. Well, we know why they have higher uh, crude oil prices and and more volume, and uh, and 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 they still say that uh, Saudi Arabia vast oil reserves are among the cheapest to produce in the world. So, of course, if you get Saudi oil compared to other uh, countries where they have to dig deeper and spend more money. The Saudis make make more money, so so uh, it's well. This know, plays astounding, just uh, right. that people couldn't figure this out, and then yet you have people complaining and and want to prolong the war. That's the sad thing about it, and and it really surprises me. Not just like the United States efforts and through its own ge- geopolitical ambition uh, to see this war. Continue uh, to confront to confront Russia and and, right. and Putin, right? But also right. the Europeans are paying the heaviest price so far, and then of course other countries and and the Saudis well, the... are ringing that cash register. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. Well, first of all, the Ukrainians are paying the biggest price for for this, and then after that, you have European countries, and then you have any other country that you know, basically needs crude oil to keep their economy going or food because of the food and the grain uh, exports that are being only only within this last week, slowly being released. But, but, but from a larger geopolitical perspective, Jamal, when we're talking about who benefits, we're looking at a, at a medieval kingdom, which is you know, putting tremendous pressure on the United States, on President Biden, disrespecting, you know, basically Biden's, you know, recent visit to to kiss the ring of MBS. And we kind of know why MBS has the upper hand. I mean, he has the upper hand because he singularly, you know, because he runs the country, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it, has his finger and pulse on the largest oil reserves in the world. $88 $88 billion, Jamal, for one quarter puts puts the Saudi regime, you know, just do the math for almost, you know, uh, half a trillion dollars in profit for the year coming up. It's an extraordinary amount of money. They're paying they're paying their dividends to shareholders of $18.8 billion just just for that quarter alone. Just the just the dividends. So does this strengthen the hand of the rogue regime? Of absolutely, course. absolutely, it does. But we see if we dig even a little bit further, you know, we have to look at uh, Ben Talal, you know, Prince Al Walid. You know, how the heck is Prince Walid investing half a billion dollars in in Russian companies just before the invasion? So what, according, according exactly according to the according. To to the findings, uh, and this is uh, we should mention his company is Saudi Arabia's Kingdom Holding. That's the name of of the company, the investment and the investment firm, controlled 
by the billionaire prince uh, uh, Al-Walid bin Talal, quietly, this has just came up now, quietly invested more than $500 million just in three major Russian uh, energy companies between February and March. Look at the timing between February and March. This is according to regulatory filings showed. They invested in Gazprom. They invested in Rosneft and Luke Oil. And those are Russia's largest uh, gas and oil companies. And uh, half a billion dollars, as you said. Yeah, but he bought it. He invested at a time when they were getting slammed and were at the lowest price. And now we see that the price of oil and gas has gone up tremendously. We see so far the Russian economy has been able to withstand, although with difficulty, withstand the economic sanctions put on them by the United States and by the EU. So it looks like Prince Talal uh, Jamal made an economic, very smart move, very that's, smart move. That's called war profiteering. But, 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 but think about this. You have OPEC, right? We know what OPEC is all about, but there is the OPEC Plus group. OPEC Plus, of which Russia and, and is a member. Exactly. So Arabia, so Arabia and Russia lead the OPEC Plus group. They're the largest holdings of that alliance, which was formed in 2017 between OPEC and uh, uh, organization and, 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 and other allied producers. And, and here, supposedly, Saudi Arabia after Israel, and it's our biggest ally, I mean, uh, in the Middle East, uh, Biden goes to two countries. He goes to Israel. He goes to Saudi Arabia. And here are the Saudis collaborating, cooperating with the Russians, investing in Russian oil companies. They're making money with the Russians. And and sadly, Biden is going, went there to beg them to produce more oil to help reduce gas prices at the pump for Americans. Yeah, Jamal. And, and the story gets even more complicated. And I'm going to throw another curveball into the kind of um, submissive position of the United States and President Biden, and this was reported in the New York Times, is that the United States is quietly trying to work with the Saudi government to send Guantanamo detainees to their rehabilitation program in, in Riyadh and in Jeddah so that they can close Guantanamo. So that, that, that that's by the way was promised to be closed during the Obama administration. Exactly, Jamal, and they have no place to send these folks, and now they're trying, they're begging MBS and the Saudi regime to take the Guantanamo detainees. So there's yet another uh, way in which the United States is going to Saudi Arabia and MBS in a subservient position needing something from them. And this whole power imbalance is changing dramatically, Jamal. And I'm afraid that as oil prices go up, the amount of submissiveness politically that Saudi, uh, that the United States has to accept from Saudi Arabia will only increase. I think this is among the weakest positions the United States has had politically in relation to Saudi Arabia in a very long time. I mean, the, the needs... The U.S. government needs the Saudis more than the Saudis need the U.S. The Saudis are thumbing their nose at the U.S. They're doing deals with apartheid states. They're doing deals with, uh, you know, with basically warmongers in Russia. And it doesn't matter what Joe Biden or the United States says, Jamal. They're going to do what they want. 
So what do you call that? Is that really such a great ally that they're willing to do all that? Give no, me a break. I mean, you know, look at our allies and look at our situation. I mean, it's somehow we preach democracy, human rights, and and we forge, uh, you know, uh, friendship and allegiance and, and cooperation and collaboration with Saudi Arabia with, because it has such a great human rights record. And then with, with apartheid Israel and defend Israel tooth and nail while they're slaughtering Palestinian children, American journalists, and, and, and so on. I mean... That's kind of my last expectations is to to kind of think about, unfortunately, Congress and 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 this administration and the administration before it to do the right thing. Yeah, Jamal. And by the way, a little, just a little, little footnote that came up in the, I think it was the Jerusalem Post. Maybe you saw it. You could elaborate on it. But the air corridor between Saudi Arabia and Oman is opening up to an apart the apartheid airline Al Al and uh, to to Israeli airspace. So all these things are happening with these rogue apartheid oppressive regimes at a time when the Europeans and Americans are paying a price, literally and figuratively, for all of these, you know, intense, you know, increases in in inflation and in the price of oil and gas and because of this war and support that the United States has for these rogue regimes. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 <laughs> FM. We've got to talk about the story of the week, at least, I mean, that everybody's talking about on mainstream media, etc. cetera. Uh, these... Uh, Who ratted on Trump, man? Who ratted secret, on him? Well, first of all, all these documents that... Trump has at in his house in Marilago. And then all of a sudden, the FBI descended there carrying, what, 11 boxes or something like this? No, 30 boxes, but 30 11, boxes. 11 boxes had top secret material. Top secret. They knew exactly where to go, where to find them. Uh, they've been asking, supposedly, through his lawyer to get to get them, and uh, he didn't. And and now it's in their possession. But the question is, uh, who ratted on Trump? Yes, it's a really good question. And I might add, Jamal, just a little piece of detail. One of Trump's attorneys signed an affidavit telling the FBI and the DOJ that all of the records had been returned back to uh, Washington, D.C. So his lawyer signed an affidavit, a statement basically that was untrue. Maybe this lawyer didn't know. Most likely he just lied and signed it to get the FBI off his case. The reason the FBI raided, in fact, was because there was, they believe, everyone believes, a mole, an informant somewhere very close to Trump because some reporting has indicated, Jamal, there's only about 12 people, maybe 15 people that know about this residence, know about this storage area and knew about the boxes and uh, where they will, where they were. And, you know, uh, Jared Kushner, Ivana, Ivana. Well, well, according uh, according to his aunt, <laughs> to I mean, no, sorry, to. Yeah, to, well, uh, Trump's cousin, 
Trump I guess she, she will be Ivana's aunt. Uh, she said, and I'm quoting here, she did that. This is another interview. She said, we need to start with who have access to this stuff. I don't think Mar- Mar- Mark Meadows would have access to, to it. This is Mary, Mary Trump. And then, and then, uh, of course, people forget if, if they have forgotten. Uh, Mark Meadows is the former uh, chief of staff who who is who's the confidant and who should know everything. I think we need. And she said she continued to say, "Yes." And this is something you'll like. I think we need to look very hard at why Jared got two billion dollars. She's referencing the two billion dollars he received from Qatar. From Qatar, so think, from UAE, from yeah. all these deals. She yeah. said, I think we need to look very hard at why Jared got $2 billion, she said. Right? She's referring to an investment into Kushner's private equity firm by a fund led, I'm sorry, actually led by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown, it was led by Mohammed bin Salman. And then when we need to look uh, very hard at why he has been so quiet for so many months now, and we need to think about who could also be implicated in this that would need a big uh, that would need a, as big a play as turning Donald in order to get out of trouble or at least to mitigate the trouble there in it sounds like somebody in Jared's position i'm not saying it's Jared he goes but it is it could be so it looks like Jared is distancing himself from Trump and there might be an investigation on this investment, two billion dollar investment. While, you know, while he was in, still in, well, I, in office. I think it's a very interesting hypothesis, Jamal. And, and then I'm just going to add because you know we don't want to sound like uh, you and I are the conspiracy theorists. We're talking about Trump's cousin who's saying this, right? And then, and then his uh, his former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, and he also also implicated Kushner, and he goes, it's definitely a member of his inner circle. This is according to Cohen. But not be surprised to find out it is Jared or one of his children. Who else Who else would know about, because he was said that, who else would know about the existence of a safe and the specific content kept inside, according to Cohen? So his former, one of- his former lawyer, his and cousin... His co- Right. But there's another question, Jamal, which is, yeah, who knew about it? But again, we come back to the classic question, who would potentially benefit? And I think the analysis on Jared Kushner being the rat, being the mole, being the informant to the FBI does in fact, we're not saying it is, we're just saying a lot of different people, not us, and pieces of information implicate Jared or someone close, maybe his, you know, his daughter, Jared's wife, Ivanka, we don't know. But certainly Jared Kushner has been quiet. And for Jared Kushner to be quiet after he got the $2 billion, after all of the scandals that have come forth, after his intimate, intimate relationship with the president throughout the four years of the Trump administration, the former president, I don't know, it smells kind of fishy to me. Jamal, that Jared would be so quiet and then all of a sudden they find the missing boxes. I don't know. It sounds plausible to me. What do you think? Well, it is It is possible because we, you, you mentioned if, 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 if something illegal was done to acquire the $2 billion, you know, take advantage of your position as a senior advisor to the president 
all access to important information. And all of a sudden, hey, did anyone write you a check for $2 billion, Jess? Or no. I mean, how easy is no. it to get $2 billion? No, no. So and let's of, not... And let's not forget that I'd also Jared benefited because somebody bought his his bankrupt building in in Manhattan in New York City, and that was also purchased through Middle Eastern Gulf money to purchase this building that was going under. So it smells really fishy to me, Jamal. I don't know what you think. I don't know. I mean, two billion dollars, and then all of a sudden now Trump is thrown under the bus. A very small circle that knew about the whereabouts of these documents, the safe, and the FBI has been investigating several Everybody. of these people around, around right. Trump. So if they leaned on Jared, if they had a lot enough incriminating evidence to say, well, let's cut a deal. It makes sense to me. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. We're not, you know, we're going to keep an open mind. We're going to follow the information and the data where it leads us. At this point, all we're doing is saying we're, we heard from Mary Trump. We heard from, you know, Michael Cohen, his former attorney, all kind of saying, huh, I wonder if it's Jared. We're keeping an open mind. We're going to follow the data. But it sure smells fishy to me, Jamal. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. 89.5 FM, go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.